and it comes from 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 16. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. It's good to be with you. It's God's kindness, in fact, to be with you in opening the scriptures um, and to study them together. And if you're new, once again, welcome, uh, whether that's online or if that's in person. And if you're here again and, and joining us again as part of the family, thank you so much for being here. It's lovely to be with all of you. And I hope we get to hang out a little bit afterwards. As I said last week, we're spending the next few weeks uh, together in a sermon mini-series asking why and what for questions about the church and our individual opportunities in the church. This pairs nicely with the kind of intentional conversations we're trying to have as a church. For instance, the congregational meeting today at 4 p.m., shameless plug, WebEx, open to everyone. Okay, that's a good example of a conversation we're trying to have, a start. But I hope really that these kind of, starting with the sermon and the congregational meeting, that this will kind of overflow and spill out past January and over coffees and beers and meals. And we can be a church that really talks deeply and honestly about what it means to be a church, but most of all, what it means to follow Jesus. And so last week we asked, what is the church and why invest in the church? And if that were not a difficult enough subject culturally right now, we might as well just go for the whole thing and make it even more difficult culturally. 
uh, I'm, we're going to beginning to ask, what does a life of ministry look like? And when we ask that question, biblically, we need to ask, what does ministry or servant leadership look like in the church? Because that's the way the Bible thinks of ministry. And specifically this week, with men in the offices of deacon and elder. Because again, that's one way that the Bible thinks about ministry. And this is important to the life of our church because uh, we are currently nominating elders and deacons, but this is also culturally important. And I would just add very hot to handle. <laughs> so do the best I can here. And I want to tell you why I think it's so hot to handle because generally the Bible speaks of human beings. And this is important as gendered, having a biological sex that means something more than, but not something less than different and similar body parts. More specifically, because the Bible also speaks about ministering the church in a, in a gendered way. Smile, shrug, grit your teeth about it. But 1 Timothy chapter 3 uses male pronouns and the word husband when referring to elder and deacon. And since this week is chock full of controversy, and I'd say important teaching as well, I'm going to do something a bit different from my typical sort of order of operations when I preach. And instead of um, kind of giving you a story, I'd like to go ahead and talk about what we're going to talk about, give you an outline, then pray. So here's what, we, what I think these scriptures are teaching us, what they say about men and servant leadership in the church. So Genesis chapter 1 and 1 Timothy chapter 3 tell us men need Jesus. And faith in Jesus alone produces true masculinity and true servant leaders. Next week, we're going to address women, true femininity, and true servant leadership in the church. So you'll have your turn next week, women. Uh, this week is uh, the men are in the hot seat, uh, and grace-based hot seat, I hope. Uh, but for this week, we're going to see the truth about men and ministry. We're going to look first in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. God made men and women differently to reflect his God's image fully. That's our first point. Our second point is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. We see that what elders and deacons ought to look like as part of their own and others' growth around them in the church. And third, we're going to look at 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 16. And we're going to see what Jesus does look like, how he completes the mystery of our own godliness. These points and verses are in your sermon outline, uh, in the bulletin, or projected behind me. But before we look to the books of Genesis and 1 Timothy, and uh, we talk about some things that are hard to talk about, would you pray with me and for our time together in God's words, perhaps especially today? Father, I confess um, that this is difficult, um, that I'm nervous, and that um, we need you. Um, I need you as a pastor who is an officer, and uh, this passage has ripped me up all week. Um, and I pray that you would be gentle uh, to heal me and to heal your people. But Lord, call us to something too. Call us to something that you would have us to follow. Uh, but Lord, don't call us to something without you. Um, as Moses said, we can't go there unless you go with us. We can't do it without you. 
And I pray that this would be a time where your spirit meets us fully, um, where you open the eyes of our hearts and help us to see you, Jesus, more believable, more beautiful, more worthy, we pray. Jesus, would you show up by your spirit and fill us, even in these words. In your name we pray, amen. So as you can tell from my outline, I'd like us to begin with what feels like the most difficult part of living in 21st century America, man or woman. I gotta speak about gender. And now that's about the time that you can delicately look off into space or study your shoelaces, feel free. Um, You don't have to make eye contact. I appreciate this, this is good. Thank you guys. (laughs) Um, But we need to talk about the obvious and the potentially offensive, don't we? I think we do. Um, We can't avoid these conversations. Uh, there are voices in the culture that are not bashful and are often relatively offensive about telling you and me how gender works. And our church needs to be a little bit more bold and also a little bit more gentle in this conversation. So let me begin with gentleness. There's a reason that the members of this church don't get up and publicly and individually vow a particular view of biblical gender and how these differences play out in God's kingdom. Why is that? Because this is really difficult stuff. It just is. This is difficult stuff. It has been spoken about poorly and meanly from pulpits in the church. There are levels of interpretation here that are complicated, even about chapter one of Genesis or chapter three of 1 Timothy. And this means that there is room to disagree. There is room to discuss all of these things, um, what I and the church leadership are about to kind of put forward about gender. Yes, we all have opinions, maybe even very strong opinions about these topics, but here's here's my plea. Can we have the maturity to discuss our opinions? And can we have the wisdom to discuss these opinions from the Bible, God's words to us? Well, perhaps you're thinking, That got bold pretty quick. Uh, And we're gonna continue going bold and I'm gonna keep clearing the air. Uh, I'd boldly ask you to give these biblical passages a fresh and charitable listen with the benefit of the doubt. Um, I understand that that is difficult. And especially if you're coming with a lot of heavy skepticism or doubts um, that you can't hold back, I guess I would just ask, acknowledge those doubts and those skepticisms to yourself. Um, and then maybe bring that same rigor of doubt and skepticism about what you already believe is true about the Bible or gender. And would you bring that to your assumptions, that doubt and that skepticism? Would you doubt your doubts? And would you be skeptical about your skepticism? Maybe at a later date. In the words of Timothy Keller, do we have a God who's big enough and different enough from us to say things in scripture that you and I might disagree with. Is he that big? Is he that different than us? So what does the scripture, in particular Genesis chapter one, say about gender? Verse 27 tells us, so God created man, that is humankind, in his own image, and the image of God he created humanity. Male and female, he created them. Notice what verse 27 doesn't use. It doesn't use the word gender but it does differentiate between two kinds of human beings, male and female. 
The Swiss theologian Emil Brunner underlines the significance of God using only male and female to distinguish kinds of humans from the very beginning. Uh, there's some quotes for you in the, in the bulletins meditation may be projected behind me where Brunner points out that God does not divide up people how we usually divide up people. Okay, for instance, think about it this way. We usually divide up people by personalities. What Harry Potter house are you? What's your Enneagram number? Did you score 1600 on the Enneagram? What, what race are you? What ethnicity are you? What intellectual abilities or disabilities do you have? What other abilities in life or disabilities or inabilities do you have? From the very beginning, God chooses a different path. In creation, God distinguishes humanity by biblical gender, by maleness and femaleness. And Brunner goes on to say that there's something about maleness and femaleness. These physical differences get at distinctions in human personality and in human destiny what he calls psychological and spiritual differences of a more ultimate nature. I'm gonna try to flush that out. Notice the intention of verse 27. This is the intention. Both men and women are equally made and equally reflect God. But as we just said, men and women equally image God differently. Like complementary colors, men and women show forth different hues or aspects of God. The God whose persons, son, father, and spirit are all equal, but also different and complementary. In particular, men and women flesh out God's relational character. His relational character. That is how we, how God relates within his trinity, his three persons of the trinity, and to us as human beings. So here's the deal. You see by the ways that men relate and women relate to other people, each gender describes God's will. God's will, that is his invitation and his pursuit, both. And these also describe God's accessibility, his mystery, but also his knowability. But after the creation of Genesis 1 comes the fall of Genesis 3, humanity chooses self-preservation and self-righteousness over God's care and God's meaning. Because of sin, men and women no longer image God perfectly or well, and our relationships are now bent. They're bent by our commitments to avoid other people, to withdraw or fearfully isolate, and they're bent by our commitment to use other people, to aggressively over-pursue them, or become codependent. But our passage in 1 Timothy tells us the story is not over there. God is at work to free us and to straighten out what's bent about our relationship realities. And God's working out salvation in his local church through men and through women. Specifically in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, God does salvation work through men who serve as elders and deacons, our sermon's second point this morning. And so as we kind of move towards away from gender in Genesis and towards church officers in 1 Timothy, I want to transition by saying what might sound very obvious, but is important to reiterate. The fact that God calls only men to the offices of deacon and elder applies only to the church. It does not apply to our nation, 
does not apply to your workplace. It does not apply even to your home chore list. And even in the church, women can and should minister in ways that likewise shepherd and serve needs in the church alongside these offices. But again, more on that next week. This week, as we move into points two and three of the sermon, I hope it'll be abundantly clear that the Bible's definition of fairness and of power are way, way bigger and way less about seeing everything is about one thing than our definitions of fairness and power. Again, give God credit for being God. For instance, as we'll see, the church is not a merit-based system. I mean, we see this every Sunday morning. It runs on grace. It runs on grace. Yes, we want competent people to run things, but those who are called the church aren't always the most naturally competent people. I'm just gonna confess something, and I can confess it generally up here, and if you wanna talk to me later, I'll I'll confess it specifically. To be your pastor is to fail every single day at my job description. Every day, every hour. So when God calls men to the offices of elder and deacon, God's not saying men are better than women. He is not saying men are better than women. Just like Moses, a murderer, was not better morally than Aaron. And also he wasn't more skillful of a speaker than Aaron. Or take the instance of the Levites. The Levites weren't better human beings than all the other 11 tribes of Israel. God does not call the conditioned. God conditions the called. God does not call the conditioned, the spiritually buff. God conditions the called. He makes his people more and more spiritually muscular. But maybe a personal story best illustrates the Bible's view about what leadership is not. So many of you know my first full-time job was as a teacher and a coach at a prep school. It was an all-boys prep school. And uh, I started off a couple months after I graduated from college. The people I was in charge of were just a few years younger than me. And I quickly realized that um, I was in an all-male monkey house. (laughs) There was posturing. There was naked aggression. Those were how you gained respect. The cool kids flipped the collars of their blazers. They untucked their button-down shirts. They wore permanent scowls. And they got what they wanted by puffing up their chests, leaning in close, and yelling in people's faces. In other words, the boys who ran things acted a lot like silverback gorillas. About the middle of my first year at the school, I found myself in a situation that tested my leadership abilities and showed me what I actually thought being a leader was all about. I was in the cafeteria during middle school lunch period watching a table, and I was likely working on my second or third dessert. Uh, Choco tacos are really irresistible still to this day. But I noticed a few high schoolers pushed their way to the line to get their lunch early, and they were supposed to wait an hour so the lunch ladies could take a break from serving people. And the lunch ladies told these high schoolers to wait, but the students did what they did all the time. They puffed out their chests, They leaned in and they loudly said no and they insisted on being served. And I found myself going from observer to actor really quickly. 
I jumped into this situation trying to, to do what I could to, to rescue these lunch ladies and their break. I started out, you know, calm, smooth, detective-like. So, what seems to be the problem here? You know, the question that you know the answer to already. And, but sadly, the escalation, the situation quickly escalated when the students didn't back down at all from me. And then something snapped inside of me and I rushed over to the gang of three or so high school students and uh, started to puff out my chest, lean in, and yell at them. It wasn't long, and I can't remember what I actually shouted, but I do remember that there was a dead silence when I finished. I looked around and every single person on the faculty, the lunch ladies, the middle school boys were all looking at me. Quiet, open-mouthed. The high school boys had slinked off, and I was just alone in that silence. And it was then and there that I realized I had become a silverback gorilla, and not a man, and let alone a leader. So what does good leadership look like then? Surely it involves standing up for what's right. But how? Why? Paul writes Timothy a letter, his protege, now a young pastor in Turkey, modern-day Turkey, Ephesus. Paul writes Timothy to address the what and the how and the why of good leadership. Verses 1 through 13 name the qualities and qualifications that the church officers, its elders and overseers, are supposed to lead with, they should have. Verses 1 through 7 focus on elders, men who lean towards teaching and running the church. Verses 8 through 13 focus on deacons, men who lean towards serving needs in the church. Yet notice what all of verses 1 through 13 emphasize. They emphasize character. Character. Not necessarily skills, at least not primarily. God is asking for the self-controlled. He's asking for the moderate. He's asking for believers in Jesus, the sexually pure, the teachable, the forgiving, the patient, to consider serving his church. This is the general, these general characteristics are then applied more specifically to the different spheres of a person's life, right? To the family life, his church life, his neighborhood life. And so you can begin to see some of the applications of what it means to be a man who images God well, to be a servant leader who wields power well, whether you're called to be an officer or not. It starts with the heart and it moves into every area of life. It looks like a real faith in Jesus Christ, like churchmen clinging to what's good staying put and loving our wives and children if we have them in situations that we can't easily fix. It looks like getting a filter on a computer, asking yourself hard questions so that you can begin to look at real women in three-dimensional ways, right ways for right reasons. It looks like wisely using money as a gift for others and not hoarding it for ourselves. It looks like actively moving into the mess of other people's lives with gentle persistence. And I just want to say this goes against the male fantasies in our culture right now. You know, being radically unattached, to need nothing, to need no one, to be the complete man or the most interesting man, to be a Peter Pan player 
who's got a lot of Wendy's and tiger lilies on the side and never grows up and also never has to risk getting deeply hurt. Or to be the Marlboro man, a rugged cowboy who dominates his environment through self-taught know-how, but also dominates all of his relationships by never actually engaging and so always succeeding in being a loner. No, the real biblical man, and a word is committed, is committed to others. And commitment comes down to the way that we truly love someone with vulnerability. And commitment is also the way that we're truly loved in return in our vulnerability. I appreciate the way that the poet turned business consultant, David White, puts it. One of the dynamics you have to get over One of the dynamics you have to get over is this idea that you can occupy a position of responsibility, that you can have a courageous conversation without being vulnerable. If I just can arrange it all properly or just say it with the exact right words, then maybe I don't have to be put out there so much. My guess, though, is that verses 1 through 13 feel totally overwhelming just by the sheer number of adjectives. (laughs) <laughs> they have in terms of describing what it means to be this godly person, this godly man. But I want to take a brief moment to just sort of point out what's not on the list, this giant list. Where is the mandate to own a boat? Where is the mandate to be good with power tools? Where is the mandate to have a varsity letter jacket in your closet or a camo gear in your closet? Where is the need to have a corner office? Where's the need to have a pull in a six-figure salary with a five-figure bonus every year? Where's the need to intimidate a conference call with your mere presence? It's not on that list. When it comes to leadership, when it comes to being a man in leadership, far too often we define ourselves and others by our work success or by stereotypical hobbies. But what 1 Timothy 3 holds up for elders and deacons, men and everyone really, is godliness. And godliness looks like moving towards people. It looks like reaching out, staying emotionally present with those people in your family. It looks like showing up to commitments and moving into these relationships with unthreatened strength. But I think there's a reason that we turn over and over again to hobbies and job performance, defined and to define leadership, instead of 1 Timothy 3's virtues. It's because if we're honest, Scripture's list of moral do's and don'ts feels so overwhelming and so impossible. And our hobbies and our jobs just don't often feel that way. It's like that Rudyard Kipling poem, If. I don't know if you've seen it. It goes viral on social media all the time. Like every few years, it pops up. This poem is written from a father to a son, and it says something like this. If, and only if, if you do this list of character-level impossible things, if you keep your head when all about you, everyone's losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can dream and not make your dreams your master, if you neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you but none too much, then and only then you'll be a man, my son. I don't get how people think this is inspirational. That feels so defeating. 
And it could be the same way with how 1 Timothy 3 reads about godliness. It can feel like a bunch of ifs to climb in order to become a man, especially a church officer. And we think, who can do these things? Why not avoid the challenge and turn on the PGA Tour and cradle a crinkling bag of Cool Ranch Doritos? But in our fear of failure, we're missing the aim and point of godliness. God. <laughs> Look at verses 6 and 9 and 13. There we see believing every day in Jesus with a clear conscience, verse 9, and great confidence, verse 13. This faith is a virtue that covers all vices, a do that blots out the didn'ts. This means that an elder or a deacon is not someone who can observe all of these qualifications all the time. No one here could ever be Rudyard Kipling's son. It's impossible. But at the same time, an elder or a deacon needs to be consistently striving to meet these qualifications as a pattern of life. And this passage is telling us that this practice starts with Jesus. If you don't believe in Jesus, your chances of actually fulfilling these virtues are shot. It's a non-starter. But whether you are considering becoming a deacon or an elder, or just thinking about who to nominate for this process in the church, or just trying to live a godly life as a man or a woman, we need verses 15 and 16. The mystery of godliness. Jesus Christ. You see, here's the mystery of the universe now revealed. God in the person of Jesus came down to be on earth as one of us with all of our hurts and all of our limits. And he moved towards his neighbors and his church and his family with vulnerability and unthreatened strength. And then this God-man, he suffered and he died on a cross for his people. He committed himself to us when we were no good to him, when we were enemies, when we were sinners. And Jesus got hurt and he looked weak, but he didn't let go. He grabbed hold of us through three iron nails and a whole lot of noncommittal sins. This Jesus proved he was God he was vindicated by his resurrection from the grave that climaxed with him being taken up into glory. And this mystery is proclaimed and believed in all the world because it amounts to an amazing promise for those who will own it for themselves and for ourselves. The promise is this. Jesus, God doesn't ask us to climb our way to heaven virtue by virtue. We could never climb to heaven on our own. Instead, Jesus climbed down to earth. And by the cross, he stoops slow down to death itself to lift his people high to heaven. And he carries us by his spirit, virtuous step by virtuous step into glory. He drags us from self-control to patience, to household management, and even to great confidence in Jesus Christ. By his grace, and by our faith, Jesus is making real men and real women and real leaders. Leaders that look like Jesus and serve like Jesus, whatever hobbies or professions we have. And so when I measure the spiritual distance between me and godliness, we've got to ask with Martin Luther, 
is, not, is it not wonderful news to believe that a salvation lies outside of ourselves? <laughs> is it not wonderful news to believe that salvation lies outside of ourselves? Do you get it? Success in all that matters is in Christ kept secure. We literally cannot fail. But I'm gonna close with an illustration of what true powerful leadership looks like. During the Baltimore Ravens win against the Jacksonville Jaguars in week 15 of the NFL season, yes, I watch the NFL, there's a video online of two quick conversations between the Ravens head coach, John Harbaugh, and the rookie running back, J.K. Dobbins. In the first exchange, J.K. Dobbins is trotting to the sideline after he's failed, and he's fumbled the ball, and his coach Harbaugh comes towards him, and Harbaugh puts his hand to Dobbins' helmet, and while he's kind of calmly cleaning the grass off of his face mask, Harbaugh gently tells him to hold on to the rock, hold on to the football. Dobbins apologizes, saying, my fault, I got you. Shortly after, maybe even the next drive, the Ravens have the ball, and J.K. Dobbins scores a touchdown. And Dobbins runs straight towards his head coach. And this, a low handshake turns into this like full-on hug. And Dobbins tells Coach Harbaugh, I appreciate you for trusting me. And Harbaugh, still hugging Dobbins tight to him, tells him, I'm always gonna trust you. You know why? Because you got that big ticker right in there, pumping. I love it. You got heart. This is what changes us from fear to faith from retreating to engaging with vulnerability. Leadership does not look like a silverback gorilla puffing out his chest and leaning in close to yell. True gospel leadership looks like trust. God trusts us, his people, his church. He trusts us with what matters, even when we fumble and fail. But why? Because the Father always trusts the work of his son Jesus and his Holy Spirit. In there, pumping. I love it. You got heart. God knows because of what he's done in Jesus, you've got what it takes. Would you pray with me? Father, a lot to take in and there's a lot of hard but beautiful things in this passage but I'm so thankful I'm so thankful for the ways that you trust I don't know why you give us the ball <laughs> I don't know why you give me the ball but I know that you work and I know you're there I know that you come alongside us and you encourage us and you give us the ball again. Lord, would you lift up leaders for this church, men and women who want to love other men and women, who want to take all that they are, all of their interests and all of their passion and all of the glory that they reflect and they want to serve in your name and they want to get humble to lift other people up. Lord, would you make me more like that? Would you make all of us more like that? And would you love and protect 
and use even this little church. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.